Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Today's guest is uh, now Anzai, who was recommended to me by Liam Goff, whose episode you will have heard uh, by the time this comes out. And now is a producer, mix engineer, a synth player, um, all manner of sort of like a career, uh, a portfolio career in the music industry. Um, but most notably, his approach to recording and his mentality towards recording uh, is completely in line with the with what we love on this podcast, essentially. Um, and in this episode, he talks about how he went about it sort of jumps around all over the place, but essentially he talks about his approach to recording um, and a phrase that we start off talking about this phrase that he's come up with called not the gear, but the ear. And essentially he doesn't care about gear. I mean, he does to an extent you're here. Um, But he, the sort of common theme that's run throughout everything he's done has been use what's available to you and learn how to make the best thing with that. And he has no doubt done, been able to do that. He's made some incredible records. Um, I mean, if you want to, before you start listening to this episode, go and listen to the Teskey Brothers stuff if you haven't already. Um, check out Cash Savage and The Last Drinks. That's a very similar sound to the Teskey Brothers. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the way it's recorded, I mean... Um, and it's just brilliant. Just go go and listen to those and then listen to this episode or or vice versa. <laughs> you will love it. Um, so we'll just dive straight in. Uh, so here we go. Now Anzai, part one. So, I mean, the first thing that I want to ask you about is I absolutely love the phrase that you've got on your website, not the gear, but the ear. As soon as I saw that, <laughs> I thought that's a guy that I need to speak to. Where, where, did that, yeah. where did that come from? And just could you talk about your sort of attitude uh, and what that sums up? You, for you? know, the, that phrase, I made it up when I moved to Melbourne, 2003, from Japan. Mm-hmm. I had a proper setup recording studio in Japan since end of 80s, 1988. Built a, a bit of the, like a suburb, away suburb of Tokyo, like a 50k down south from Tokyo on the coast. <clears throat> and then, but when I moved to Melbourne, I didn't have anything. I couldn't bring the studio with me. So... Basically, I needed to work out the things with a very, very limited amount of equipment. So I need to work out the phrase <laughs> to, you know, promote my business. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's a, it just sort of sums up the kind of recording that I'm into particularly. And it just so shows that it's not the, um, you know, as you say, it's not, you can have all the lovely equipment that you want, but <laughs> unless you've got a good ear for what you're doing, you're going to struggle. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, interestingly, after I made up that phrase, uh, I kind of 
proven that, not on purpose, just uh, happened to be. Because uh, all I had that first year was uh, I shipped with me the, like a small, like a 12-channel Behringer mixer. Okay. And just a handful of microphones. I had a kind of nice old four to one and things, but uh, not many expensive contents or anything. And I only had a setup with a computer. I never done that before, actually. The while I was in Japan, I was mainly using the Tascam 16 truck. Oh, cool. And then computer audio was quite new, the RE2000. So it was just supporting to add more tracks because 16 is not enough, but uh, still mainly using the 16 track, analog. So, but I couldn't ship it because it was not in good condition. It's not worth shipping it. They're heavy and as well. I don't machines. have a big desk to you know, use a 16 track. So I had an audio interface, very early days, like a 24-bit side, uh, 96K possible. I think it was Echo Light or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had a Cubase set up then, or can be the very fast version of Nuendo, simply because I don't like Pro Tools. <laughs> I had a Pro Tools, but try not to use it. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so, yeah, that's all I had. So, I made a record for the post rock band called Loa. They were, they've been. They had been the kind of most popular post-rock band in Australia for a while in mid to late 2000. And it was their very first full-length album. And I recorded and we made a first single out, 2003. And then somehow that became the single of the year in the local big magazine that's a kind of local Melbourne music magazine, but probably the most influential then before the internet era. <clears throat> so I got the kind of enough name and everyone said that, oh, how to make that sound, blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't tell them. It was a Behringer mix of the field 57, you know? <laughs> Amazing. I love that. Absolutely love it. <clears throat> yeah. So that's, that's a kind of proven that was, so I kept it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you still got it now? Hmm. So, yeah, like I, still, I, I think the, because of, when I started the recording studio in late 80s, before that, or actually, till I moved to Australia, recording engineer or recording was my side business. Because mm-hmm. I've been working mainly as a synthesizer programmer and keyboard player. Yeah, Liam mentioned this. This sounds really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, as a side business, as a recording studio, at the start, when I built my recording studio, I asked my friend, good engineer, to come as an engineer. Then I just kind of stay as a producer role when I'm recording the band. And when I'm recording my stuff with the media and things, making the music for the video and things, then I can do by myself. But I not a professional recording engineer, so as somebody else to come in for a recording lecture band. Then one day he, because he was good, he got too busy. So I need to work out by myself. 
So I just, you know, watched him how to do that. And then after that, basically, because at that time, only 16 track, and I, we didn't have a, lots of posh mics and things, we only have two biggish electric condenser, which was Sony, and other than that, 42 runs, 57, that's almost it. So four mics on the drums. So basically, it is super important where to put the mics. Yes. Because yes. I have some bands, you know, drummer bring the four times, lots of cymbals, but only have four mics, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for the drums. So that only way to work it out is just use your ear, find a hot spot for the, you know, mic position. That is the only way I know. There's no other method, so... Yeah. So were you moving the mics based on, uh, for different drummers? So, you know, for drummers playing very yeah. cymbal heavy, you've got to, you know, yeah. you know, adjust the positions. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, sometimes only three, because of the channels, allow for the drums. So in that case, I have to put one, of course, on the kick. And then other two need to capture all times and cymbals and snare in a nice balance. <laughs> so it's quite a big trick, but we, we've been used to do that. So every drummer, every drum kit has a different good spot for the microphones, not always the same. So we didn't decide visually where it should go. We only need to use ears to listen, listen here, hit the thumbs, High time and uh, yeah, low time, then snare, uh, yeah, maybe a bit like, a bit less, then position, and you got another mic. Yeah, hit the floor time, cymbals, and where it should be, high, low, or that's all we could do. So, so are you, are you talking? Um, I'm a drummer, so I'm interested in this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you in, are you talking sort of a, a stereo overhead style thing, or have you got, um, are you putting them in, in different places? Interesting, if it's arrow only a few mics or four mics. I don't think I ever done the overhead. Okay. It's always underhead. <laughs> because because uh, I want to capture more thumbs, snares, all those elements, rather than too much cymbal. It needs to have a cymbal, but not a cymbal heavy. Then if you put the overhead, unless the drama is particularly you know, hit the thumbs really hard, but really softly hit the cymbals. Mm -hmm. Usually overhead, always cymbal heavy. Yes. And later, if I squash the comp, even more cymbal heavy. <laughs> yeah. So what I learned is basically underhead, you know, between thumbs and cymbals, or sometimes just the side of the thumbs kind of height, mm -hmm. and then still enough cymbals there. And when you squashed it, actually, it's better balance. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I never put the overhead usually. Yeah, when it's come to only three or four max. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you, are you yeah. thinking um, kind of between between the two toms, uh, sort mm. of over the bass drum, underneath the ride cymbal, perhaps, or um, have you got like a starting yeah. point that you like? The starting point I usually did then was. Uh, it's up to the, do I have enough channel to put the snare mic or not? Okay. And in most of the cases, if you, if you capture the two, you know, one stereo pair, should I say stereo pair or not, but I don't know, <laughs> anyway, two those underhead mics in the yeah. position, 
then in most of the cases, I don't really need a snare mic because most of the drama has a very loud snare comparing to the Thomson singers. Mm-hmm. So unless the drama snare is not really loud, I don't really need this snare mic. In most of the cases, snare mic is turned down quite low. Yeah. So I usually put the one mic between hi-hat and fast thumb, but carefully, you know, choose a position which is not too hi-hat heavy. Yes. But yeah, still good balance between that thumb and snare and hi-hat. And the other one, and at that time somehow in Japan, the most of the drama has a two rack thumbs and one four thumb. Okay. That was a kind of standard setup. Mm-hmm. And another one going between the mid thumb and four thumb underneath the right symbol somehow. And again, capture some of the snare drum as well. But of course, the hi-hat side mic usually get more snare. Yeah. So unless you have a separate snare mic, it's quite hard to position the snare at the center. I was going to ask, so you're panning these. Yeah. Yeah, kick always center, but snare on the one side, a little bit shift to one side. That was a normal thing. Actually, the many recording at that time was or 70s recording things the same. Snare is not really always up to center. Mm, While they're trying to put the kick center, mm-hmm. then later I understand why should we put the kick always the center. Then later I understand very decently, like the last 10, 12 years, because I'm doing the mastering for lots of vinyls. And then when it comes to vinyl, if kick at the center, that helps a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So now you, I understand. Yeah. Were you EQing much of mm. these? You, so you were compressing after the fact. Mm. Were you putting yeah. any EQ on on the way in through the desk? Yeah, yeah. So I, at that time, I was using those Tascam sixteen track recorder with a big Tascam desk called the M six hundred. Okay. <clears throat> that was a nice desk, particularly the EQ was very nice, but. Free was not really nice. <laughs> Free was good, good enough. But uh, you may not know, but uh, there was a kind of big game changer happened early 90s, just around 90, 91, 92, when the company called Mackie started a new desk. <clears throat> Before Mackie and after Mackie, any desk, affordable desk, say not the SSL, not the need, say under... $20,000 mark, right? Any disc under $20,000 mark, their best pre is just sounds good, but still noisy. Yes. When the market came in, we were super impressed because of the super low noise for that price of desk. Mm, interesting. So not because uh, we are impressed by the sound character, Yes. But the cleanness. And somehow that, that changed again. Before that, for any good sounding desk, but not expensive, means you have to bear with the noise coming from microwave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that task comes desk is exactly like that. So I remember the mine was 600, and there was another better version called the 700. 600 is the biggest separate console. And the... Uh, 700 is the big and inline console, like SSL mm-hmm. style. And both are the same generation, but both are the same pre. 
that one of the recording studios, serious commercial recording studio in the countryside near the Mount Fuji, they didn't have a budget to buy SSR or Neve, those things, but they won't have a serious recording session. So they could afford that 700 Tascam flagship model, but they knew that pre is not good enough. So what they done is they actually invited, you know, the chef, <coughs> the under chef, the engineer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They invited him to modify the desk. Oh, cool. So that Tascam desk is a Tascam desk, everything Tascam, but pre chef came in and put all the chef pre all through. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. They, are they still using that desk now? Still in the studio near the Mount Fuji, I think so. Yeah, they, st so, they still use the desk now. I think so, yeah. Yeah, that was so very cool. Amazing sound. And uh, yeah, EQ is Tuscan, but Tuscan League is nothing bad. It's mm. not like a knee, but I kind of like it. So the, yeah. as long as you had a top quality pre game part, then that's done. It's a good desk. Fantastic. So, yeah. Do mm. you, it's uh, so, uh, sort of still sticking with that era of your of your sort of career. What? How did yeah. um, guitars and bass work? Uh, were you miking up? So if we talk about guitars, yeah, we, we, we just mic'd up with the 421 or 57 or something like that. Sometimes that's Sony electric condenser. The Sony electric, electric condenser, again, the same thing. It's sound character-wise, it's still a nice condenser, but it's super noisy comparing yeah. to the, you know, the new generation after 90s. And another game changer in early 90s was Rode, Rode NT2. Yeah. Then that came out. All other cheap condenser mic became a history. <laughs> because the noise ratio is completely different. I was still remembering the really shocking moment when I bought a pair of Rode NT3, like a bigish, you know, like a kind of small diaphragm pencil style, but the kind of bigish pencil. Yeah. And I used it for the overhead to record the drums. As usually I use it, you know, the Sony electric condenser. Mm hmm and I found out the noise, amount of noise is completely different. <laughs> I didn't particularly like the character of the road mic. It's a little bit too shiny, too mm -hmm. bottomy, but yeah, I have to say it's super clean. So, yeah. You're not the first, um, the sort of first engineer I've spoken to who's uh, spoken really highly of the road mics. Um, there's a, you know, oh, Mal yeah. Malcolm Toft who makes the Toft, um, the yeah. Trident desks. He yeah. he was said. You know he. I mean he knows his his uh, he knows his eggs. And he was saying that uh, the road stuff's really really good. He he loves it. Yeah. The you have to understand that I never liked the road character, mm -hmm. but I have to say it's still the cleanest mic ever made. So one day after I moved to Melbourne, I, one day I was asked to record the theater play. Mm -hmm. No mics. No bag <laughs> mic or anything. So I'm arrowed, just hang the mic from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. That's all I could do. And um, I need to quickly, it was a kind of last minute request, I need to quickly gather all the mics. I brought two of the Rode NT3 and I hired a pair of the AKG451 and then another pair of Karek, I think, and then six mics hung from the ceiling and recorded. And later, of course, I need to gain that a lot because it's just a theater conversation about, yeah. you know, a couple of meters down from the hand mic. It's quite quiet. Yes. And it's gaining a lot. 
and that reveals NT3 is a solo winner. Wow. Yeah, against AKG, against Karek, way quieter. Interesting, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> I, then after that, I decided, okay, even though I'm not a big fan of the character of this mic, I keep it. Yes. For the, any distance recording, like a loop mic in the big theater, this works. Because I can EQ it, you know. I don't like a top end, then EQ down. Mm-hmm. Bottom end too much, I just rock up, you know. But noise, if you cut the noise digitally, it's changed the, you know, into the, some kind of digital sound. So, yeah, I, so there's still the, like in the Pesky Brothers uh, recording at the Forum Theater, mm-hmm. the big anal recording, but I put the, that road energy repair at the balcony, on the balcony side, and then it still worked. Wow. A, about 20 meters away from the stage. And yeah, it's still, you know, quite enough. <laughs> clean. So, yeah. So, of course, I didn't like a character, so I EQ'd a lot. But yeah, still, yeah. that less noise helped me a lot in that situation. So. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Mm. I'm interested. I mean, I, I don't know anything about um, sort of the music scene in Japan. What was it like growing up for you? Um, through- uh, it's a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of story. And then that story behind why I moved from Tokyo to Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was young, say, I was born in 1962. Mm-hmm. 1964, Beatles came to Japan. Yeah. At that time, I have say, I, I had lots of things from my, you know, the mentors, <laughs> one generation higher. <clears throat> Going to the Beatles concert was prohibited by schools. Okay. At that time. Wow. Rock and roll was evil. <laughs> I love it. So, so if you go to the Beatles concert, you're gonna be, you know, the, you're gonna be grounded, kind of thing, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I I was too little, but uh, I I was brought up in that circumstances. But still, if you turn turn on the TV channel, there was a Japanese band scene there, like a so-called uh, group sounds, like Spiders or those bands. Mm-hmm. So I was brought up with those local bands music. And then when I was seven years old, Yellow Submarine movie came to the theater, you know, movie theater. Yeah, yeah. And my aunt took me to the movie theater to see it. That blew my mind <laughs> as a seven years old kid. I bet, yeah. <laughs> like a complete psychedelic, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it just, just planted something in my head then. <laughs> So, when I was in like in the primary school, the some of the senior friends starting the bands, covering the Stones and Deep Purple, Zeppelin or whatever, and some Japanese indie rock bands, and I saw them at the school concert or something. And yeah, this is cool. <laughs> so that kind of quite indie rock scene was quite active in Japan in mm-hmm. early 70s and mid 70s. And throughout till mid 80s, I think. But in the 80s, to the cross the late 80s, there was a big change in Japanese music scene. <laughs> I 
Till then, basically, all young people was <coughs> listening to overseas music. Okay. But that more, that's a cool thing. You know, yeah. listen to the US hit song, UK hit song, even the French one, whatever. Coming from overseas, this is cool, you know. We yeah. don't have it here. We can do something like this, blah, blah, blah. Somehow, in the mid-80s, some producers start making the Japanese pop music really good. That is nothing bad. And even the Japanese rock music scene became a kind of major scene. Mm-hmm. That is nothing bad. But that became a kind of new genre called J-pop. Yes. Or J-rock. Yeah. And then after that became huge. So it's a generation, one generation younger than I am. So maybe the people now... 40-something, mm-hmm. their generation stopped listening to the overseas music. Okay. And somehow the Japanese media has a problem. Had a problem and still has a problem, even worse. Point is, maybe you can't believe this, but community radio, bigger than 500 meter reach, is Illegal. Oh, worry! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was a law. Japanese government was almost forced to make during the Korean War time. Okay. By the pressure from U.S. government to, against the communism, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So any big community radio can become the movement you know, for the people to activate those things, those yeah. sorts. So it's not great. Okay. So community radio is really small township radio only. Mm-hmm. Still the same low dominance. So only the big radio station, commercial radio station, or 500 meters square. So there is no big enough indie music scene surviving by themselves. Yeah, I so, see. Until the, all the young people was listening to the overseas music, commercial radio had some program to follow that, you know, people's interest. But once J-Rock, J-Pop flourished, then all the young people stopped listening to overseas music. Quickly, all the big radio stations stopped all the program about those overseas music. Okay. So it's now quite small numbers of radio stations is following the over music, overseas music scene. And the magazines, even worse, the last, very last magazine, major magazine, which was all about overseas music scene, stopped, discontinued about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it is now the Japanese music scene is perfectly domestic and... The worst part is not only that, <clears throat> Japanese economy was quite high late 80s, early 90s. So somehow Japanese record market was only one Japanese country record market was bigger than entire UK EU wow. around 1990. Yeah. So the one of the reasons why <laughs> I decided to not stay in Japan 
I was working in one of the top band in Japan as a backup band member or the recording programmer, thing like that,、mm-hmm. in the mid 90s. And they are a super good band. They could have been worldwide famous because of their quality and interesting music scene. And then they tried. They are almost with their own management company. So they're the main artist of the, that management company. And then they both are keen to go overseas in just in the midst of the 90s. And they have already sold millions of millions of copies in Japan. They completely conquered Japan. And they won't go overseas. And Sony was the company then, <laughs> Japan. Yeah. Then they had a super big budget. Like when I was recording with their, one of the albums, the budget was like, say, $150,000. Okay, wow.、Well, yeah. Kind of thing. So they're big. But yeah, yeah. when we. Then they told Sony that we're going to go overseas. Could you support us? They simply said no. Wow. <laughs> Then、crazy. we asked why. Their logic is US market is too risky to invest money. And European market is too small, not profit- profitable. Yeah, yeah. So stay in Japan. <laughs> And just, what the? Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? so short sighted, isn't it? That's crazy. Yeah, so, so, we, so the, they're big enough to do the things by themselves. So, without the record company's help, you know, at that time there is no indie movement, there is no internet.、Mm-hmm. Re- releasing a record needs to be go through the major recording company. But they had a good enough amount of money piled up. So, the band and the management. By themselves, went overseas, see the festivals, talk to the festival director, book them, blah, blah, blah. They did a lot. And independently talk to the, each branch of the Sony all over the world. Do you want to release us? Yeah. At that time, that band was doing Latin music mixed into the rock and Japanese pop. So, as a result, Brazilian Sony decided, okay. We are solely interested in, even the headquarters not, then we're going to release it. So, could you make a Portuguese version? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we made it. Wow. <laughs> so, we actually toured Brazil、oh, and、cool. also toured Germany, played at the、uh, Monterey Jazz Festival in yeah, Switzerland, yeah. Yeah. and meet them in France. We did all those things by our, our own budget. Wow. Not by the recording company budget. So after that incident happened, then I thought, now, now the recording business in Japan will not go anywhere. Yes. So if they're definitely the top one of the top band then. So if you become a top artist here in Japan, there is no exit. That's the end. So、yep. there is no way I stay in there. <laughs> That's but I, one of the reasons why I decided to. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. What was um? So you were, I mean, you're a musician. What, what's your first instrument? What do you play?、Uh, I've been playing the synthesizers. Oh, oh, of course it is. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, knew, I knew that already. <laughs> so, I, I learned the piano when I was a kid, but I was the worst student of my piano teacher <laughs> because I hate practice. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then, but I was not fired by her because my eight years younger brother was the best student of hers. <laughs> <laughs> he later became a pianist. Okay, well. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but I know, comparing to my brother, there is no way I can be a pianist. But somehow, when the synthesizer was still the super new thing, mm-hmm. no one's teaching it because no one knows what it is. But still came in. And then, it's the mid-70s, yeah, like late 70s, uh, finally, the Yamaha or Roland called those things started and synthesizer became a kind of affordable. So this is, you're a teenager at this time? Yes. Yeah. So when I was 15 years old, I bought the first synthesizer, wow. which was Yamaha CS30, which is still, I'm using it here. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Still, I love that synth. So, but <clears throat> when it came out, there was no textbook or anything. So I just taught myself. Okay. And somehow I loved it. So I kind of quickly familiar with the logic behind synthesizer. So by the time I hit the university, you know, the band and things, and I was playing a lot of synths. And at that time, somehow, the early 80s, suddenly synths became a big thing, yeah. you know, <laughs> throughout the 80s. I didn't expect that. So I didn't expect that synths can be a career path for me when I got that. Yeah, fast. you were just interested in them. Yeah, those, but... Yeah. So there we have it, Now Anzai Part 1. Hope you've enjoyed listening to that. Um, I absolutely loved speaking to him. And uh, yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like he's just super wise when it comes to doing things uh, by ear. And I, yeah, love it, love it. I realised listening back to my introduction that my voice sounds a little bit tired. And that is because I am tired. <laughs> um, getting back to gigging now. And uh, I've had... How many shows have I done this week? Three or four. And uh, yeah, feeling a bit uh, a bit knackered, to be honest with you. And I've got another four this weekend. And uh, there was me thinking post-pandemic that I would just be concentrating on the studio. Um, I'm going to have to redress this balance and <laughs> get, back, get back to doing studio stuff. Um, so anyway, I hope you guys uh, have a great week. Uh, I'd just like to remind you all that... Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that by buying one of the lovely enamel mugs. Um, they are on my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, and there is a link to the shop there. Thank you to everyone that's bought one already. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind as to just scroll down on the podcast homepage and uh, give us a review... I mean, I'd love it to be five stars. Um, but that kind of stuff just helps with keeping the... Uh, sort of podcast at the forefront of of things um, and we're, we're growing quite a lot at the moment which I'm really happy about and I'd like to uh, to keep that momentum flowing um so yes that's it I'd like to say a huge thank you to Rory for editing and uploading and doing all of the podcast uh legwork to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music and David Henshaw for the artwork supplies have a fantastic week and I will see you next Tuesday goodbye Bye.